baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Here's a good idea. Have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. Welcome back to At Your Service with Brad Young this evening. We'll be until 11 o'clock. And uh, glad you're here with us. What's on your mind this evening? Phone lines are open, 314-436-7900. Call or text. And in fact, I I do need to tell you that uh, uh, producer Mike has this theory that somehow I am such a a powerful and influential member of the community that I could single-handedly contact the commissioner of baseball and arrange it so that I'm in on Thursday evenings in the absence of Cardinal night games. That's that's producer Mike's theory. Uh, I can tell you with absolute certainty uh, that that or there's not a shred of truth to that. But uh, but my point is, it is Thursday. So do we play Rebecca Black? Do we not play Rebecca Black Friday in the next hour? Listen, I need to hear from you. Phone lines are open or text line three one four. Four three six seventy nine hundred. Do we continue? Turn, no, don't go, Mike. Not yet. No, 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 my friend. Do we play this in the ten o'clock hour? Yes or no? <laughs> Mike just can't wait. Just can't wait. But what do you think? I need to hear from you. You know, it's kind of like it's kind of like a, a holding a, a a lottery or a, a vote, a poll. To see if someone's going to get uh, executed at midnight or not. You have, phone lines are open. Should we uh, turn on the electrical charge or not? Let us know. But it's only about Rebecca Black, which depending on how you view Rebecca Black, it may actually feel like a death sentence when you're listening to it. So that may, in fact, uh, be your perspective. Uh, speaking of polls, there's a poll that came out this week about this case that I've been following for two years. It's called Mahanoy School District versus BL. You've heard me talk about this with Ryan when the case first uh, started moving through the courts. Uh, It's at the Supreme Court right now, and oral argument was held about three weeks ago at the Supreme Court. If you don't remember the case, let me briefly refresh your memory because a poll came out about this particular case. And this is an instance where a high school student, a female high school student, she was on the junior varsity cheerleading squad, and she didn't make it to the uh, to the varsity squad. She tried out. She was notified that she was not picked. And so on a Saturday night on her own phone, on her own time, 
away from school, not during school hours, again, Saturday evening, she sent out a Snapchat to a certain number of her select friends. And she, you know, used language that she shouldn't have used. And she said, you know, F school, F softball, F cheer, F everything. And this was sent out to just a few of her select friends. And with Snapchat, of course, it disappears after a period of time. But apparently one of her friends was, wasn't as good of a friend as she thought. They took a screenshot of it, gave it to the head of the cheerleading squad, the varsity cheerleading squad, who then took action. And this student, as is typically the case with minors, it's her initials only, BL, so we don't know who she is, from Pennsylvania. And so the head of the cheerleading squad turned her in to the principal, and she was punished for what she said. So the question becomes, can or should school districts be able to control the private, off-campus speech of kids? Should they be able to do that? In all of the cases that the, this, this kind of issue has been litigated many, many times over the years, but this is the first with social media. The issue of whether and to what extent schools can control the speech of kids and two of the most notable cases is the one and the the landmark decision in this area it goes back to 1969. It's Tinker versus Des Moines School District, and there, kids were wearing black armbands to protest the Vietnam War, and the school wanted to take action against these kids uh, because because they were wearing these armbands at school, and the school didn't want that to happen. And, uh, and so that case went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said that kids don't, don't uh, sacrifice their First Amendment rights at the schoolhouse door. And they ruled in favor of the kids, and they said in order to allow a school district to control the speech of the kids, the school has to prove that it would be a disruption to the operations of school. So that's the level. I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying a, a 75-page Supreme Court decision into two or three sentences. But that's the gist of what the court said in 1969. So the litigation since then has always been revolving around what, what and to what extent can school districts control the speech of kids. Now, I certainly don't approve of this particular girl in the, uh, in the Mahanoy School District case that's at the Supreme Court now. I don't approve of that language. She shouldn't have done it. You're right. But at, at what point can school districts control speech? That's a big issue. That's a huge issue. And, of course, the, the Biden administration is siding with the school district here about controlling speech. And the other case that that's, that's, I think is kind of funny, and you'll see why, came from 2007 uh, whenever uh, apparently some kids came uh, to school and they were holding up a banner that said bong hits for Jesus. Now, I don't know what that means. I don't know what they were advocating. I'm not really sure what that organization is, but they were holding up this banner that said bong hits for Jesus. And, uh, and the courts sided with the school district there because it was disrupting school when everyone was talking about bong hits for Jesus. So there has to be this element of proof about proving a disruption to school. But how can a, a, a personal uh, Snapchat message to other kids at school 
disrupt a school when it wasn't even sent to anyone at school. So that's going to be the question in this case. Now, just uh, uh, in the moment that we have here, the polling data came out today, said that 52 percent of Americans who were polled said the school should not be allowed to punish students for off-campus speech, should not be allowed to punish students for off-campus speech. What do you think? 314-436-7900, call or text. But uh, right after this break, we're going to talk to radio legend Johnny Rabbit about Gaslight Square here in St. Louis. I wanted to talk to him because that's always been a fascinating topic for me. Uh, It's before my time, but it's an interesting part of St. Louis history because it launched the careers of so many famous musicians and comedians and singers Uh, And yet it just completely disappeared in the mid-60s. After this break, Johnny Rabbit here on The Voice of St. Louis, KMOX. Keep pace with the latest locally. Ask your smart speaker to play KMOX. Gaslight Square. That famous entertainment district here in St. Louis that really flourished from the early 1950s until sometime in the mid-1960s. Now, that, that was before my time, but I've always been interested in Gaslight Square because of all the celebrities who found fame and fortune after working there. So joining us this evening to uh, to explore the glory of Gaslight Square is our very <laughs> own radio legend, Johnny Rabbit. Hey, it's great to talk to you again, my friend. Oh, thank you for that great introduction. Good to talk to you, Brad. How are you? I'm doing well, and uh, I'm glad you could join us this evening here on X. And uh, before we get into all the celebrities that came out of Gaslight Square, uh, set the table for us. Uh, what was Gaslight Square, and, and where was it located? Hey, you know, there are a lot of people who have no idea. Now, there is something that's still at that intersection of Gaslight Square, which was Boyle and Olive, 42 to 4300 block of Olive, 400 block of North Boyle, and there is a a brick wall with some columns on it, and on one side there's some inscriptions of performers that played there, uh, people who owned the clubs, and that type of thing. But that's it. Everything else is gone. But that's where it was, right in the heart of Midtown St. Louis, right at the Central West End. Uh, It kind of off the beaten path, because for many decades, that place had been uh, antique stealers, uh, used mm-hmm. furniture stores, uh, rug dealers, oriental rug dealers. And there was a company there that promoted themselves. And this company still in business, not there anymore. But they were through the before and through the entire Gaslight Square period called AA Importing Manufacturers of Antiques. Now, that's a hard thing to do. But they make antique reproductions. Today, they're almost all made in Korea. Uh, you'll see these all over the place, and you'll swear they're antiques. But hmm. that is gone. Gaslight Square is gone. I mean, the name wasn't uh, the original name. Uh, it, it got the nickname Greenwich Corners in the mid-50s uh, for Greenwich Village because it had that sort of unique beat characteristic, old houses, old sm- no hmm. big mansions on the street, but a lot of two- and three-story houses and small apartment buildings and an old hotel. Uh, that was called the Adams Hotel that had originally been the YMCA Hotel. And and things started to develop. 1953, a guy named Dick Mutro bought a, the largest building in the square, the Musical Arts Building. And th- that building lived up to its name. It was about music and voice. Um, 
a lot of people, a lot of entertainers, opera singer like Helen Trouble, who went on to great fame. Uh, she studied at the Musical Arts Building, was filled with studios and art teachers and music teachers. And Dick had the idea, he's going to buy this building and open a bar. And for whatever reason, he called it Gaslight, the Gaslight Bar. And so that was the first thing that happened to create Gaslight Square. It was on Boyle, uh, and it opened in 1953. So it was really way before uh, the Gaslight Square time. So it started to develop, and people started to go into this area that really only had a couple of old-time taverns like the Sterling Bar and a couple other places. And the, there was a, a Chinese hand laundry, the Hop Key Laundry, that later became O'Connell's. And mm. when you take it up to date, the O'Connell's that we have today at Kings Highway in Shaw uh, is very similar in looks to what it was like on Gaslight Square. Even to the chandeliers, which were their brass chandeliers, which were originally uh, in the British building in the 1904 World's Fair. And later on, they went to the Three Fountains, which is the fanciest restaurant in Gaslight Square. And equal to Tony's or any other restaurant in um, St. Louis and to the best in the country. And it was in that same musical arts building. So people started to, to gravitate toward it. First, the local people. It, be, it became a uh, kind of a mecca for local entertainment. And a lot of it had to do with Dixieland music. That was a real big thing with Gaslight Square in the beginning. And the, there are so many artists. I just made some notes before I was thinking about people, local people that played the square often. Muggsy Sprecher and his Gaslighters. <laughs> it was Sammy Gardner in <laughs> Mound City 6. Singleton Palmer. Uh, he actually played with Count Basie. He was very good. He was at the Opera House. Billy Peak, uh, Seal Clayton, uh, sort of a pub singer. Frank Moskis, he did sort of folk and gypsy-type music. Uh, there was Jules Blackner. Uh, he was a pretty good rock and roll star in St. Louis. Uh, was uh, Jules Blackner and the Twist Tones when the Twist came in. The Quartet Trebian. And they did pretty well. They had a, a contract for a couple of albums on Decca Records. Uh, jazz group, Jeannie Trevor, local singer, uh, singer of pop songs. She appeared at the Muni for many years, and she's still around. Chris King, Tommy Wolf was a pianist and arranger. He did things with uh, Jay and Fran Landisman, who owned the Crystal Palace. Called One of the things he did, the Nervous Set, which was a play, actually ended up on Broadway in New York, did pretty well. And all of this was happening at the start, kind of a the beat generation. You know, we talk about Generation X or Y or Z or whatever it is today. Well, that was the beat generation time. But, Dave Ben, great pianist. But there were, the there were comedians there. There were also comedians there, weren't there, Johnny? I mean, well, There I, were lots of comedians. Sure, it, it, it was... Uh, there weren't as many local comedians as there were national people. Now, yeah, some of the Liddy national Bruce. people... Yeah, Letty Bruce oh, was Liddy there. Letty Bruce, absolutely. Um, they, the Smothers brothers were there. Woody Allen... Uh, he used to talk to his uh, psy psychologist, um, a psychiatrist, <laughs> excuse me, when in between sets. And one time, Jay Landisman owned the Crystal Palace, heard him on the phone, which was between the men's and ladies' room in the basement of the Crystal Palace. And he said, I'm dying in St. Louis. They're, they hate me. I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> He's oh. calling his psychiatrist in between sets. That's yeah, really right. funny. Gene Krupa was there, the drummer, Miles Davis, Chris Barbara Streisand. And Barbara was just a uh, kid then, spent yeah. a lot of her time across the street at Jack and Charlie Carl's Two Cents Plane, which is a, a kosher style delicatessen. And Mary Strauss of the Fox Theater fame. 
befriended uh, Barbara Streisand, used to take her by uh, downtown on the streetcar, uh, down to uh, Scruggs, Vanderford, and Barney to go to the basement sales to buy clothes. Because, mm-hmm. you know, Barbara Streisand, you know, some of these people we're talking about truly the beginning of their career. This, this is not, you know, that, hey, you know, Woody Allen, Barbara Streisand. Phyllis Diller. Deal. Phyllis Diller. Oh, Phyllis Diller. Jackie Mason. Great. Yep. Uh, Jackie Mason, Jackie Leonard, uh, Professor Irwin Corey, Dick Gregory from yep. St. Louis, uh, Gypsy Rose Lee, uh, Jerry Stiller and Ann Mira, Joni mm-hmm. Mitchell was there, uh, um, wow. Fred Willard from television fame, uh, Allen Ginsberg, Mike Nichols, oh gosh, uh, Jack Kerouac. Uh, Steve McQueen was on the square for a, a few nights, but not as an entertainer, but right at the beginning of his career. He'd hang out of the Golden Eagle, hmm. and they used that for part of a scene, a scene in the movie The Great St. Louis Bank Robbery. And it was like the first time that uh, people knew about Steve McQueen. But again, uh, you know, so many of these people were at the start of their career. Right, but with all of those big A-list names, yeah. what, what, happened to, to, what happened to Gaslight Square? I mean, as far as I can tell, it just kind of went out of favor in the mid-60s. What happened or what led to its uh, demise? Well, there were, you know, one of those things that you can't pinpoint one thing. There are so many things that happened. The development was fairly slow to start with, and, a, you know, a terrible thing happened that everybody thought, I mean, basically everybody thought it would be the end of the square. February of 59, a tornado came through St. Louis, a massive tornado, mm. the one that knocked down the Channel 2 Tower over on Berthold off of Hampton and Oakland and destroyed several buildings in that West End, Central West End, Midtown area, including a number of them on Gaslight Square. But all of the the, the people who own these places, and uh, there, there were a lot of different uh, clubs that were there, or restaurants, they all got together and said, we're going to rebuild. We're not going to run away. We're, we're going to, I mean, they had to rebuild. So they had a lot of insurance, and that helped them. They got, they got a lot of help from the breweries and the wine companies and the liquor distributors. Because they were starting to make noise. And after 59, that's when things really started to get big. 60, 61, 62, 63. And then in 64, there were a couple of murders. Uh, one, one on Gaslight Square and one near Gaslight Square. And the media built it up and made it a lot worse than it was. But that was a um, kind of an iffy area uh, at that point and still in some areas of near there. It still is. Uh, There was the problem with crime and the perception of crime. One of their real problems was parking, very few parking spots, a handful of parking lots. So a lot of people parked blocks away to go there. And if you're in a kind of an iffy area, you don't want to do that. Yeah, yeah, not the best thing to do. So so it gradually uh, there was racial tension. There was this crime element. Plus, the hotels band together and they were lost so much business in the heyday of Gaslight Square that uh, they started taking, or at least in a couple of cases they did, and threatened to take cab companies, cab stands away from the hotels if they were ever caught not struggling to stop a person from going to Gaslight Square. They were supposed to tell somebody got in the car, like, I'll tell you to the, take you to the Jefferson or the Chase mm-hmm. or the whatever, but I can't, in my conscience, take you to Gaslight Square, just too dangerous. And that really started to hurt out-of-town business. And then with, uh, the, again, the perception of crime, uh, started to hurt the local business, but, but it was still big. Everything was still big, and it was still in the old style. It was this you know, kind of a real beat, bohemian atmosphere, low-key, a lot of, as I said, Dixieland and folk singers and jazz, very light, no no disco, no go-go girls. Well, 
big money wanted to come in, and they started offering a lot of money for people to sell their business to them. And when they did that, they started raising the prices, and they started putting in the neon signs and the stuff to make it cheesy and flashy, like mm-hmm. North Beach and San Francisco became. And it it just started to fall apart. The locals weren't going. The out-of-town people were getting scared about it, but it's getting a lot of bad publicity. But I'll tell you, the, there were so many places that held on as long as they could. But about 67 was really the end, 66, 67. Then by 73, it was gone. That's when O'Connell's finally moved to their current location. And everything else just shut down. A few people tried to reopen places. You know, some places would be open for a month or two months, but nothing worked. Uh, Actually, you know, I'm looking at a list that I created recently about all the places that were there. Literally, there were... Over that period of Gaslight Square days, there were over a hundred different places. Could be restaurants, Goodness. could be clubs, uh, uh, things that people have forgotten. There was Ernie Hellman's Magic Den. He was a magician that was on Channel 5, and he had his own club. Didn't last long. Intermission 13, The Insomniac, The Dark Side, The Other Side, Pepe Agogo, Whiskey Agogo. Um, and a few, not that many rock names came in there. Uh, the Almond Joy later became the Almond Brothers Band. They they mm-hmm. played there, uh, so that it it just it developed, it grew and grew, and then oh, incidentally, I just saw this today is the twentieth. Tomorrow will be the fifty fifth anniversary of the last streetcar in St. Louis. From the wow. days of public streetcar, it was the Hodeman Line ran right through Gaslight Square. We had a big party on it, and all of the party um, sandwiches and beer came from. Jack and Charlie Carl's Two Cents Plane, which was right there on the square at a, a little street under a uh, walkway intersection called Washington Way. In the memories, my gosh, if you were there, it was one of the most fabulous places and so many characters. There was a guy named Seventeen. Seventeen was a guy uh, who had he sold um, things like uh, boiled shrimp out of the truck uh, trunk of his old forty eight Chevy. The, on, the original food was, truck, uh, right there. The original food right truck. There, all right. At seventeen, he, he seventeen. That's all he says. Seventeen, and he, supposedly he had been incarcerated in the uh, Missouri Penitentiary for seventeen years, and it turned out he wasn't the uh, the perpetrator of whatever the crime well, was. Lots and, and lots uh, and yeah. lots of characters. Hey, we're talking to yeah. radio legend Johnny Rabbit, and before I let you go, Johnny, you've yeah, got. Sure. Uh, You've got something that's uh, tasty and sweet coming up, don't you, with regard to uh, a, a virtual event? Wow, thank you for asking about that. I certainly do, and it is Monday. It's called From Vest to Velvet Freeze, and it's going to be all about ice cream stores and dairies and soda fountains and anything to do with candy and ice cream. And, uh, there are so many things in St. Louis, so many soda companies uh you know, so many things that are long gone, like um, Peebly Dairy, of course, is long gone. They had the Peebly Playhouse with Russ David and Dottie Bennett and a couple of big fountains. And, uh, gosh, uh, sodas like going back to, uh, oh, Anheuser-Busch had Great Bouquet, which was a very big soda in the time of Prohibition. And then they will talk about the how Vest got its name. And there was a takeoff of Dr. Pepper put out by Vest called Dr. Schnee. And we'll cover all that kind of stuff. Now, people and, want to get involved with Yeah, this. what can it's they do? What can do. they do, Johnny, if they want to participate in this virtual event about the, the St. Louis soda and candy and ice cream history? What can they do? Go to stloasis.org. stloasis.org. 
And our class number is 9320, or you can just put my name in or classes or something like that. That's probably the easiest way, stloasis.org. Class number is 9322. It's Monday, starts at 10, it's over at 11, and it's all by Zoom. And they're always a lot of fun. We'll have uh, probably about 75, 80 vintage photographs of these places. Fantastic. Johnny Rabbit, uh, you are a wealth of knowledge, my friend. Thanks for joining (laughs) us this evening to talk about Gaslight Square. Ah, Brad, thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Hope so. Good night, my friend. Bye. The one and only Johnny Rabbit. Hey, when we come back from this break, uh, we're going to talk about Mark McCloskey's in the news. Yeah, you you thought we could get rid of him, but apparently that is not the case. Uh, What else is on your mind? Phone lines are open, 314-436-7900. Call or text here on At Your Service on KMOX. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Get the inside story on what's happening with your St. Louis Cardinals this season directly from the Redbirds manager. It's the Mike Schilt Show, Sunday mornings at 10-15, sponsored by Bath Fitter, on your voice of the St. Louis Cardinals, KMOX. Welcome back to At Your Service with Brad Young this evening. Thanks for listening. Uh, I mentioned before the break Mark McCloskey, but before we get into that story, uh, you heard uh, one of the commercials during the break was Ryan Recker. And, of course, if you're listening to this show, you undoubtedly know him, you love him, you can't live without him, Ryan Recker. And, of course, he has moved to St. Louis Talks from 11 to 2 every day here on Camo X with Carol Daniel and Bo Matthews. So make sure that you check that out, even on days when there are Cardinal baseball games during the day. They're recording shows and podcasts. You can go to camox.com. You can get the Odyssey uh, app, and you can listen to uh, Ryan and Carol and Bo every day from 11 to 2 or any time that is convenient for you on the Odyssey app. Now, Mark McCloskey, uh, <laughs> talk about a guy who just, uh, uh, I would say, exploded onto the scene nationally, but uh, that, that would be a bad pun since he was waving guns. Uh, I, I listen from the day that story broke. I've been a strong supporter legally of him being able to defend his home. I don't even think it's an issue legally uh, because of the not only because of the Second Amendment, but Missouri has what's called the Castle Doctrine, which empowers individuals, empowers you and me and anyone else in the state of Missouri to protect their property, which even includes an automobile if there are criminal threats to that property. And when you talk about those protesters, we've all seen the video encroaching on the property owned by the McCloskeys, uh, allegedly destroying a fence, but certainly having the appearance of a group that wanted to conduct violence. Uh, And Mark did the right thing in terms of not firing. You know, he simply had the weapon to demonstrate that he was ready to protect his property. Uh, and the fact that he was prosecuted, I think, was purely, purely for political reasons. And the courts have agreed with me because you remember that Kim Gardner, 
She doesn't seem to prosecute murders and other crimes, but my goodness, she was zealously prosecuting the McCloskeys for what they did to protect their own property. And eventually, the courts took that case away from her, gave it to former U.S. Attorney Richard Callahan to prosecute because the courts determined that old Kim Gardner had a had a conflict of interest because she was using her prosecution of the McCloskeys for a political fundraiser. So, yeah, that doesn't raise any appearances of impropriety. <laughs> of course it does, which is exactly why the courts made the right move to take this away from her, assign it to a special prosecutor who is at this point evaluating whether he's even going to take this case to trial. Now, I'm bringing all this up, and speaking of trial, the trial for the McCloskeys is tentatively set for this November. Now, I have no inside knowledge. I have not talked to Richard Callahan about this, and if I had, he wouldn't talk to me. He's an honorable guy. But uh, I personally, uh, from looking at this, I don't think that this case is even going to proceed to trial because the 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 nature of the alleged crime, the, the defenses to this are so clear-cut that uh, I just don't anticipate that Richard Callahan is going to take this case to trial, even if he does. Even if he does decide to take this to trial, Governor Parson has already said that he would issue a pardon if he were convicted of this particular crime. Now, there's an interesting quirk under Missouri law. You cannot pardon someone before they're convicted. In other words, you can't give them carte blanche to go out and commit a crime. So Governor Parson can't uh, can't pardon him now because he hasn't been convicted of anything. So uh, so we'll see how this case moves forward. But in that context, since this catapulted Mark McCloskey to the national spotlight, he's been on Tucker Carlson many times. He, uh, he even had a, a, a video clip in the Republican National Convention uh, in 2020. And, uh, and he obviously is, a, is an ally of President Trump or now former President Trump. And so he's announced that he is going to be running for the Senate because uh, longtime incumbent Missouri Republican Roy Blunt announced, I think he announced in March that he would not be seeking a third term as the senator, senior senator from Missouri. So last time that I checked, uh, McCloskey's going to be running against uh, former Governor Eric Greitens. Now, those are both guys, both guys who know how to use an AR-15 right there. Uh, and so I hope they don't really get into a heated, <laughs> a heated dis, uh, debate or dispute. So it's Eric Greitens is in the race. We also have Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt, who's uh, thrown his hat into the ring. Several members of Congress have kind of hinted that they're looking into running for this uh, Senate seat from Missouri. But so far, we haven't seen any specific announcements from any of those members of Congress. Uh, If they're going to do this, they're going to have to announce it before the end of the year just for fundraising purposes and getting your ground game together uh, organizationally. So look for those announcements to be coming before the end of the year. Now, there have been, I counted, about five Democrats who have also announced Senate bids, but you know, those are going to be long shots. Missouri is a is a red state, runs heavily Republican. And uh, and I would anticipate that whoever wins the primary uh, in this race for the Senate will most likely be elected uh, to be in the U.S. 
Senate. So Mark McCloskey is uh, throwing his hat into the ring. And at some point, I'm going to try to get an interview with him because, uh, I, I mean, I know him professionally. I, I'm an attorney and I've, I, I've met him before. Uh, I've seen him at functions, but we've obviously never talked policy positions. So I'm going to try to get an interview with him next time I'm here on At Your Service, and we will bring that to you then. Uh, when we come back from this break, you know, I talked earlier about some free speech issues as it applies to this case coming out of Pennsylvania. But there's been more free speech issues, and I'm troubled because at every turn, free speech is under attack in America. And unfortunately, so many people today don't think this is a big issue. We're going to break that down as as well as some some more COVID issues, uh, how the lab leak from the Wuhan Institute of Virology is looking more and more like the main culprit behind COVID-19. Brad Young at your service tonight on The Voice of St. Louis, KMOX. Next Level Listening. News Radio 1120 AM, 98.7 FM, KMOX, the voice of St. Louis. You know, the uh, the poll is still open here on whether we should be playing Rebecca Black Fridays uh, or Friday after the uh, 10 o'clock, coming out of the 10 o'clock break. 314-436-7900, call or text uh, listen, you can vote like you're in Chicago right now. You can vote early and often. Uh, and so those uh, those lines are open. There will be no dangling Chad. There will be no recounts. Uh, and there will be no constitutional challenges to the vote. So 314-436-7900. Uh, speaking of constitutional challenges, I mentioned this case at the Supreme Court dealing with uh, the cheerleader and her texting. And we're seeing yet another case. Just this week, there was a case in Connecticut where uh, a student uh, was arrested for calling a classmate a, well, actually, she didn't, she called a a classmate a racial slur. I won't mention the slur, and it was done on Snapchat. And not only was she uh, punished, apparently it was a female, but not only was she punished for this, but uh, she was also arrested. The teen was arrested for committing a crime of hate speech in Connecticut. Now, this particular law goes back to the late 1800s. It's a very, very old law. But the question becomes, and that's what is a fundamental question in our country now, with whether we're talking about hate speech, whether we're talking about religious speech. You know, at some point, if you've got a pastor— who says that homosexuality is sin, or you've got a pastor that says that uh, transgenderism is wrong, Is will there be a day that those people will also be prosecuted for hate speech? Because that's the question. That's the problem with saying we should prosecute people for hate speech. Because what's normal speech today, that can be classified as hate speech tomorrow. I mean, you could be the one calling for the criminalization of hate speech today, and then tomorrow— your very words could be used to prosecute you. I mean, that's why this has been an issue that has been litigated extensively at the Supreme Court. I'm not going to go through all these cases, but just a, a cursory glance at some of the cases uh, they started like in the 1940s, upholding that this idea of hate speech, even though the Supreme Court has never really defined what hate speech is. And please hear me. It's not as if I'm 
advocating and saying that hate speech is is worthwhile or that hate speech is good or moral, because I certainly don't think it falls into any of those categories. It's not good. It's not positive. It's not moral. It's not right. But there's a difference between something being immoral and wrong and it being criminal and allowing someone to be placed in jail for the content of their speech. And that's the part where I draw the line. So, yeah, going back to the 1940s, and I think one of the cases that is most representative of this case out of Connecticut, where this student is being prosecuted for using a racial slur, in 1992, there was a case that went up to the Supreme Court, uh, and the person was basically using the same type of language against African Americans and even burning a cross in their yard. And uh, Associate Justice Antonin Scalia, one of my favorite all-time Supreme Court justices, he wrote, and I'm quoting, because the hate speech ordinance was not concerned with the mode of expression, but with the content of expression, it was a violation of freedom of speech. So in other words, even if speech is reprehensible, we're not going to ban that speech unless it poses a threat of imminent danger or harm. That's the point where it moves from speech to violence. And when that moves and it transcends that move from speech of an idea to advocation of violence, that's the point where the conduct moves from being just morally wrong to becoming criminally wrong. And that's that dividing line. And so when we look at what this student uh, sent in Snapchat in Connecticut, and is going to be prosecuted for that. I have a problem. Even though I don't agree with what that student sent via Snapchat, I have a problem with the idea that the government can put you in jail for the content of your speech. Now, I'm not trying to draw too big of a comparison here, but you know, if you go to countries that are run by essentially dictators, the the biggest ones, of course, being both China and Russia. They routinely prosecute people for the content of their speech. And I don't think that we want to follow suit with those countries to say, you can be punished because I disagree with what you say. Coming up after this break, we will see the results of the poll. Rebecca Black, yes or no, on Friday's Hang tight through this break. Brad Young at your service on KMOX. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.